So what's my subject? How to pray. How to pray. Now, I'm going to begin by reading an article I took out of the Register Guard here a week ago, and it's entitled, Prayer at Center of Your Life Has Power to Transform. And uh, then it says here, uh, 20 years ago, and this is a lady who is a, a so-called clergy woman, 20 years ago I went through a devastating divorce. The pain and sadness forced me to look at life differently and to seek out a truth on which I could rebuild my life. And although I was raised a Christian, I turned to the teachings of Buddha. Chanted Hindu prayer at retreats was Ram Das, who's a well-known uh, uh, re religious leader in that field. Uh, at retreats with Ram Das and read a three-volume commentary on the uh, uh, Bhagavad Gita, and that's one of their so-called writings. I started meditating on my own, and then I attended the Blue Mountain Meditation Center in California to deepen my practice. And there, Sri Ezrawan taught me what is known as passage meditation. He teaches you to memorize an inscriptural passage from any sacred text. Then in your meditation, you go through the words of the passage in your mind as slowly as you can, letting each word drop singly into your consciousness. Your repetitions drive the words deeper into your consciousness so that it eventually become an integral part of you. The secret of this meditation is that you become what you meditate on. I began to practice using the St. Francis prayer. As it goes on to say here, the simple prayer is one of the most well-known of all the prayers in recorded history. In it, St. Francis describes the essential content of our highest self. Now, just to interrupt here, did you know you have a high self? He expresses the deep yearning that we all have to be spiritual beings who inhabit our physical form. In fact, if you were thinking, if I can interrupt here once again, if you can think what was going on in all those funeral proceedings the other day, the fundamental Protestant belief is, and I think the Catholic as well, is that man is a dual being. He has a body and he has a soul. And when he dies, his body goes back to the dust of the earth and his soul goes up to heaven. Unless he's done something wrong, then he might go to some intermediate place or directly to hell. Now, at the resurrection, the body is reunited with the soul. And that's the whole concept. It's nothing but Greek dualism, paganism, that came into the church second and third centuries. Now, to get back to this article, uh, this lady says... Uh, uh, he expresses the deep yearning that we all have to be spiritual being who inhabits our physical form. It expresses the wish to be an instrument of God's will. Each morning for over 20 years, I have recited the words of this prayer. It be, has become a touchstone for me, connecting me with the highest, most sacred aspect of my being and connecting me to God. When I first started memorizing the prayer, I had to start from the beginning again and again, and hundreds of times I began with the words, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And those eight words alone can improve every relationship we have, starting with our relationship with ourself. They can help promote peace in our family, our workplace, our community, and our world. And the practice of prayer is an incredibly powerful force for transformation in our lives. Now, folks, I don't think you've ever tried that, have you? Well, if you have any sense, you won't. Because here's what Jesus said. This is Matthew 6, verse number 7. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Vain repetitions. So my question today, or my topic today, is how to pray. Now, let's notice a few things here. I don't think... Most people, certainly most people who profess Christianity, have the slightest idea of the importance of prayer. But it's got to be done right. And what I read to you is not prayer, and it's not being done right. That's just a form of meditation. And uh, it, it is not God's way at all. Now in Luke 11, and verse number 1, it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Teach us to pray. 
So they wanted to know how. Because they certainly saw that Jesus prayed. And they knew that it certainly must be valuable and important. Now going back here to uh, Job chapter 21. Here's a, here's a fundamental attitude that many people in the world have. Job 21 verse number 15. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him, and what profit do we have if we pray to him? Now you think back before you ever knew the knowledge of the truth, did you ever try to pray? If you did, it was probably just give me this and give me that, wasn't it? case of the gimmies. So that's not prayer, really. That's, that's not the kind of prayer that Jesus said to make. And in Psalm 102... Verse number 17, we read this statement. Psalm 102, 17. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. Now, we can take the word destitute here to have many meanings. It can certainly be physically and it can be financially and it certainly can be mentally or it can be any number of ways. It certainly can be spiritually. But he hears the prayers of the destitute. And remember what we read in James 5, verse number 16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So praying is important. Now let's go back to Matthew here, and I'm going to put a bookmarker here in this particular chapter because I'll be referring back to it quite often under, under each heading here. But as we read here in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 9, this is what he said. In this manner, therefore, pray. Now, what most people do, if, you heard the, uh, if you've ever heard the prayers that are made in various churches, it's merely a quoting of various passages of Scripture. And they presume here that uh, when you pray, you should simply repeat the Lord's Prayer. That's prayer. I remember I was talking to a man who had been an officer in uh, World War II in Germany, and he was in that Normandy invasion, and they were dug down in foxholes one night, and the Germans started bombing. And he said they were just terrified they were going to get hit. And he said he got as low as he could in the foxhole, and he just prayed. He wanted to pray, and he, didn't, he couldn't remember how to pray. He didn't know what to pray about. And so he sat there the whole time the bombing was going and thinking of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, in the next lines. And that's how he was praying. Well, I don't think God spared him because of that reason. He probably spared him because the man was going to be called later on, and he was. But it does show you, you see, they think that that's the prayer, that that's how you pray. All that prayer is is an outline, an example to follow. So let's break it down here. The first thing he says is, Our Father which art in heaven. Now why would you want to start that way? Actually, you're starting with two things. You're starting with the fact that you're acknowledging God as your Father, your spiritual Father, but also you're acknowledging the fact what his position and power and location is. Now you go to some physical king or some person on this earth and beg a favor, you have to go to a literal individual at a literal location, don't you? Unless you can do it through channels, and sometimes that happens. But mainly, what you're looking at here, what you're hearing about here, or what you're reading about here, is someone who is so powerful that he hears the prayers of any person on earth, wherever that person may be located. Now, don't ask me how God does it. He's omnipotent, and he's omniscient. He's all knowledge, and so he is capable of doing that. He has a nature and the kind of characteristics that we don't really grasp. We're so limited. But we read here in Jeremiah 32, in verse number 17, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power. How many people fear God's great power today? They don't even understand it. You have this whole concept of evolution. And uh, people don't, have, no, have no realization 
of what's going to take place in the future and what could be done any time God chose to do so. You made the heavens and the earth by your great power and an outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. Well, I can tell you as a human being, I don't care what capabilities and powers you have, there's plenty of things there that are beyond our power. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. I want to set the stage here by just uh, emphasizing the importance of, of this realization when you begin to pray. In Second Chronicles, in verse number 6, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? He chooses to do so. So the fact is this. The fact is that every single thing that goes on in this earth is allowed by God because he's the one pulling the strings. As we'll see in just a moment, he's the one that even chooses the leaders. It's often been said that uh, people get the kind of leaders they deserve. And that's pretty well true. Uh, let's notice Daniel 4, verse number 35. Daniel 4, verse number 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heavens, and among the inhabitants of the earth no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Well, there are people like that today. They've got a chance they'd like to tell God off. Well, what folly, what ignorance. So it shows you very plainly here that this is a God of great power and glory. Now, not only that, he's a father. Notice it in Isaiah 64 and verse number 8. Isaiah 64, verse number 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. So what did Jesus say? Our father which art in heaven. You are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Now God has set the whole aspect of human reproduction in the hands of human beings, and they reproduce. But all they're doing is reproducing further candidates or more candidates for God's kingdom because God has set that in motion wouldn't happen if he had not set all the laws in motion that determine that. Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15. Here's what we are. When you consider the fact that Christians are in a special category, you read here, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, he is our Father. So when Jesus said, Our Father which art in heaven, that's what he wanted us to realize. And remember what he said in Matthew 23 and verse number 9. Call no man Father. There's only one. And that's God the Father. So that prayer begins by that acknowledgement. Now going back to Matthew Chapter 6, and verse number 9, we read here, Hallowed be your name. What does the word hallowed mean? It means to, to reverence, to treat as holy. And when he says here, Hallowed be your name, we come to the word name here, and as that is generally used in the Bible, the, the, the sacred names people, so-called sacred names people, has this thing utterly confused. And what it really represents is God himself as manifested and revealed. If some man were going to be out in a cot in a riptide and he cried on God to save him in his name, the name isn't going to save him. God will save him. 
So it's an example of what we have to realize about the word name. Now, when you look here at Jesus' statement here, this certainly throws some light on it. And this is in John 17 and verse number 6. John 17 and verse number 6. This is what Jesus said. I have manifested your name. He's praying to God the Father. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now, did they not know anything about God? Why, the whole Jewish religion was aware that there was God. So all of a sudden now he's saying something that had never been revealed before. He was revealing the Father in his person. And he was revealing the Father as he is manifested. He had not been revealed before. So we, when he said, Hallowed be thy name, it, it has more than one connotation. Now in Isaiah 43 and verse number 7, we read here, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So what is God saying here? Everything he'd done, everything that he did, was at his choosing, and it was done by his power and authority and by his very being, and that he formed him and made him for his purpose. Isaiah 29, 16. Surely, he says here, they say, you know, who, who, know, who sees us and who, who knows us? That is, that's how, that's how they view God. Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be as esteemed as the clay? Shall the thing made say to him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Yeah, when you say hallowed his name, that has a meaning. Yet how many people misuse God's to name all God's name today all over the place? You know one of the condemnations of this whole world today? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Boy, that certainly is true. Romans nine, verse twenty. Romans 9, verse 20. Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to say who formed it, why have you made me like this? You know, when you have people who have been born handicapped and that kind of thing, is that God's fault? He set the process in motion, but what if people are violating the health laws he sets in motion? And as the Bible says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. People want to blame God for everything. They don't respect him, and they don't really have reverence for his authority and his power and his name, his very being. Isaiah 48, verse 1. Isaiah 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellspring of Judah, or you were sprung from the seed of Judah. So what he's really saying is that you have both Jews and Israelites who are all descendants of Abraham. That's all it's saying. See, all Jews are Israelites, but all Israelites are not Jews. Who swear? Now, this is what I want to point out. This is what goes on. I, you can see these big, um, high, high, powerful, potent, uh, potentate uh, clergymen who have great offices in this land, and they stand up there and give these august prayers, one type or another, and here's what he says who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. Talk is cheap. That's what we better realize. If you're going to do the talk, you better walk the walk. It's going to do you little good in the final judgment if all you did is just talked all your life. 
and people stand up and talk and don't live God's way, they're in for a shock. Back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 10. Your kingdom come, or thy kingdom come. Now what is that telling us? That is telling us that we'd better have an interest in how God's going to solve the world's problems and what salvation is all about. And if you don't have an interest in that and if you don't understand it, you have this silly notion that there's no kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in the hearts of men and you're going to flitter up to heaven. Your soul is going to flitter up to heaven when you die. And then when you come back down at the resurrection, be united with the soul and happily, wherever you're going to be, you're going to be with God. Boy, if that isn't pure poppycock. That is not biblical at all. You can't find it there. It's not found in the Bible. What the Bible really teaches is that there is going to be a literal kingdom set up on this earth. In fact, what was Jesus' gospel all about? Read Matthew 3, verse number 2. He came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The way they have it today, they talk about the gospel. You know what they think that is? That's all the various incidents that happened in the life of Christ. So if you go around, you, you talk about what he did here, or what he did there, and you preach this incident, this incident that took place, and this healing that took place, this, this and that, you're preaching the gospel. Nonsense. You're preaching about the life of Christ, but the gospel is a message of his kingdom to be set up on this earth. And that's coming in the future. Now, you can read about that in many passages in the Old Testament. I'll just read the one here very quickly. I won't spend a lot of time on this. Most of you are aware of this. But let us notice here Isaiah 2 and verse number 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all hills and all nations shall flow to it. That's talking about the coming kingdom of God. Many passages say that. I'm not going to go do a whole lot of passages on that. Most of you know that. But you see, this is what we have to be thinking about. What other reason is there for living on this earth except to gain eternal life? If you just live for this physical life and what pleasure you can get out of it, that's all you have. And when you get old and the old rocking chair gets you, you look back on it so fast and you wonder where in the world it went. And was it really worth it? The kingdom of God is the only thing that's worth striving for. Daniel 7, verse number 27. Daniel 7, verse 27. Here's what we read. <coughs> then the kingdom and dominion so what, he's, what this is really dealing with is how the, the various kingdoms and governments of this earth will be removed and as it says here then the dom kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people the saints of the most high his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him now what if they drag their heels Read Zechariah. All right, now the kingdom of God is going to rule everywhere, and it's going to rule the whole world when Christ returns. And uh, whenever that takes place, I don't have the slightest idea. And uh, if, these, if this tribulation is, is going to be what the Bible says it really is going to be, and I certainly believe it is, I don't want to be around to witness that and see it. Jeremiah 23, verse number 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall prosper and reign and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That's referring to Christ. What's going on today? You'd have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to assume that. So thy kingdom come. That's an important part. That We need to have an orientation in that direction to be thinking about that and to be praying for that end. Thy will be done. Verse 10. 
Now let me say this. God's will is going to be done on this earth whether we pray about it or not. He's already determined what he's going to do. So when he says, your will be done, to whom is he referring? To you as an individual. And you as a free moral agent have the right to decide whether you're going to do God's will or not. And you're praying here that you will be able to do with God's help to do his will. Which is not always easy, is it? You know, we have all kinds of people that profess to obey God and serve God and worship him, don't they? And what did Jesus say? Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I'll explain one thing to you here. Shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean you're going to go to heaven? No, it's a kingdom that belongs to God in heaven. But it's coming to the earth, as the Bible passages clearly show. Read the book of Revelation. And uh, if we're called to a knowledge of the truth, then this is what's expected of us. Let's notice, notice it in 1 Peter 4 and verse number 2. See, as Christ suffered in the flesh... And uh, we need to have the same mind that he has. And he says, referring to the individual, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That becomes our orientation. So we're ask when we're asking to do God's will, a part of that prayer includes that. Thinking about the things that we need to improve on and maybe the things we're making mistakes in and the things we're wrong in. And anybody that does not think he's making mistakes or wrong is completely misled. Human nature being what it is, what do you think? I don't know why it is. Every time we get in some jam and get accused, then we get defensive and start defending ourselves and, and denying it. Why don't we just be honest? Ephesians 6, verse number 6. You see, we're to serve... As it says, there's talking about bond servants, but certainly it includes any, anyone. It says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, if you just have to be dug along and you go along because you somehow are forced to, it isn't going to do you any good. It has to be desire and a willingness and, a, and wanting to do it. That's why that prayer is so important that you ask God to help you to do his will. And as we read in Romans 12, verse number 2, do not be conformed to, the, to, the, to this world. In fact, let's go back and read that because it talks once again here about the will of God. And in Romans 12 then, verse number 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A lot of people don't obey God because they don't know what he, what he expects of them. How about studying the Bible? Do you know what God expects of you? Thy will be done. Now notice next. Give us this day... Our daily bread. That's verse 11. Now we know that if we're obedient to God, we'll be blessed and we'll be taken care of. In Psalm 34, verse number 10 is one good example. Many passages that, that cover this, so I don't have to dwell on it. I just want to call a couple of these to your attention here. But Psalm 34 and verse number 10, we read, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord do not lack any good thing. Any good thing. Now, the difference is, of course, a lot of people can't tell uh, what, uh, what a want and a need is. And they're constantly getting the two of them mixed up. They're the kind of people, they see something, they want it. Oh, boy. What comes to the rescue? That wonderful credit card. 
till the day of reckoning. And then the pain and the agony that goes on wearing to come up with the money to pay the bills, that's another matter, isn't it? Needs and wants are two different things. Matthew 4, verse 4. I want to carry this one step further, though. Because I'm not just talking about physical needs. God promises to, to provide those physical needs for us. If we're obedient, and we're applying the rules of success, and we're willing to work. But as we read here in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So when we're talking about our daily bread, what are we talking about here? We're talking about both the physical bread of life and the spiritual bread of life. What did Jesus say in John 6, verse 63? John 6, 63. Jesus said this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. It is this just for a limited space of time while you're here on this physical earth. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So when we're talking about the bread of life, we're also talking about the Holy Spirit. And we're talking about the spiritual food we, need, we, we really need. And uh, again, I could say a lot on that, but let's notice Job 23, verse number 12. This, is, this goes clear back to the book of Job, but it sure is interesting because it shows you the insight that these ancients had. Job 23 and verse number 12, this is Job answering. He said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. More than food. So when he says here, give us this day our daily bread, let's be aware that certainly includes the need to have God's spirit. That's the bread of life. Now, you know you can't live very long without physical food. Some people have gone quite lengthy, at quite lengthy time periods because they at least have had water. How long can you live spiritually without God's Spirit? What will happen to you if you neglect that Spirit? It's inevitable. You will die spiritually. Just like you will die physically if you go long enough without food. I knew a woman one time decided she was going to go on a health fast. And she wasn't going to eat anything for 30 days. And she kept waiting for the time when, after that 30-day period was over, that her hunger would return. Well, it didn't return, and she died. You can only live so long without food. Christ went 40 days. I doubt if any of us would make it that long by any means. Now let's go back here to Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 12. And we read here, Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Oh, what happens to you when you come to God to pray and you're all mad and upset with somebody full of anger and resentment? How far do you think your prayer is going to get? You know, if you got that kind of feeling and you come before God, I'll tell you the first thing you better do is cry out to God to help you to get rid of that. So that is not dwelling in you. If that's dwelling in you, your prayer is already doomed. Here's a good example of what God is really like because this father here in this example really illustrates its example of God and uh, his attitude toward the repentant sinner. Because here was a prodigal son. Oh, did he ever live it up. He finally came to his senses. He realized what a fool he had been. And he said here, I will arise, this is Luke uh, 15, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. That's humbling himself, wasn't it? Was that being repentant and sorry? You bet it was. 
And he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and saddle him sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here. And let us eat and be merry. Yeah. What did Jesus say? There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So I can tell you, if you find someone who is repentant, he's forgiven. He, if he really means business and he's sincere. Now let's notice Psalm 130, verse number 4. Psalm 130, verse number 4. There is forgiveness with you. You see, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If these were not forgiven. But there is forgiveness with you. That's based on repentance. Sorrow. Recognizing what you've done wrong, turning around and going the other way. Stopping that form, that course of life. Reversing your direction. That's what repentance is all about. And that's what's forgiven. Colossians 3. Now we're talking about God forgiving us. Now what about us forgiving others? You get griped at someone and you're carrying a grudge. Is that going to do you any good? I remember I read um, uh, Booker T. Washington's book. Very, very outstanding man who achieved marvelous things. And he was asked one time, how come he never had any hate and bitterness against the white people for enslaving the blacks? You know what he said? He said, I hate them. It doesn't hurt them. It hurts me. I'm the one who suffers the consequences of it. I'm cheating myself out of happiness. And I'm cheating myself out of the opportunity to really progress and improve. So if you bear a grudge, here's what you read in Colossians 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. That's what we have to do. We have to get it out of our system. And not harbor something like that and let it stay, because it's only going to kill us in the end. In Ephesians 4, verse number 32, Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So you see, when he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our others, you see, when we receive forgiveness for our debts, it's going to be commensurate with how willing we are to forgive others and not hold grudges and bitterness. Bitterness is only going to hurt you. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Just remember what Jesus said. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Straightforward, isn't it? That's why he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Now notice what we read in verse 16. Do not lead us into temptation. Actually, the Greek should be, do not allow us to be led into temptation. Well, temptation is a tremendous problem for a lot of people. I'll tell you why it's a problem. Because they're not oriented enough toward God, and they don't have the kingdom of God in mind, 
and they let these physical things come up in the way, and the, the drives of human nature can be overwhelming. You know, the Bible talks about being under the power of your nature. You know what power is? Power is what controls. And if the human body, your nature, is controlled by your lusts and passions, you are under the power of your lusts and your passions. There's only one way you'll, re you'll, you'll receive freedom from those. And that's with the power and the help of God. Matthew 26, 41. Here he told his disciples, it had been with them three years. And did he think they had all kinds of power? Here's what he said to them. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, that's true of all of us, isn't it? We can have all kinds of desires. You know, we can have plenty of wishbone, but very little backbone. And what we need is the backbone and the wishbone. Second Peter 2, 9. Second Peter 2, 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Yeah, you got a temptation. You know what does the Bible say? You know about all the immorality and the fornication and every rotten thing that's going on in this world today. What does the Bible say? Flee fornication. Don't put yourself in a circumstance when you, you will be tempted. Have enough sense to recognize that. Yet how many times do you read that people get in just absolute terrible things that happened to them because they didn't have a lick of sense to see what the foresight, with enough foresight to see what it was going to lead to. Pretty sad. Psalm 34, 17. Psalm 34, 17. The righteous cry. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. They can see what's ahead. They have enough sense to realize what something something could bring about. And they recognize they're being tempted on something. Where do you get help to avoid it? You know, the Bible talks about people who rejoice in temptations and tribulations. You know when you rejoice? After it's all over and you've conquered. You're not going to rejoice during it. It's painful and agonizing, stressful, terrible. But when it's over and you've conquered, you have great cause for rejoicing and you will rejoice. There's a benefit in it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Here's God's promise. And unfortunately, it's not translated accurately because there's a meaning that has not been made plain in any of these. There may be some versions that show it, but the, um, the King James doesn't, and certainly not even the New King James. But as you read here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has ever has overtaken you except such as common to man. Everybody experiences the same thing in different regards, different ways. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above beyond what you are able. And here's how it should be translated. But with the temptation will also present the end or the outcome. Now what's that mean? That means that he'll give you enough insight to see what overcoming that temptation will mean in a benefit to you in your life. You'll be able to see that. And that'll give you the strength you need to endure. Because how many times have people been, have been undergoing temptations and they prayed to God and they, they, they weren't delivered? Because they did not have this gift here. They weren't sincere enough in overcoming it. And they did not have this insight and this gift to see what conquering that would mean. They'll lay their whole reputations on the line and ruin themselves, ruin their whole futures, disgrace their families and everything else because they can't resist the temptation. They never think of the consequences. 
but just think of the benefits when one conquers. All right, back to Matthew 6 and verse number 13. But deliver us from evil. Now, several translations use the word evil one there, but in reality, the Greek only uses the word evil. Now, certainly it could include the devil, and I'll mention that. But primarily, it's, it, uh, it, it's asking God to help us to not be delivered into some kind of a condition we can't get out of. And anything that's going to harm us spiritually, to detract and take us down three or four steps spiritually. We don't want that. And that's not good for us. In Ephesians 5, verse 16. This is what Paul said. This is the time which we're living to. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Are we living in evil days? And you find hardly anything that's made public that isn't wicked and unrighteous in some manner or another. Read the newspapers. Watch the TV news. See how much goodness you're going to find there. It's sick. The whole society is sick, as the Bible says, from the head to the toes. Galatians 1.4 Here's what God came to do. You know, this has been true all along. How much worse is it going to get here? Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So that really means that prior to Christ's return, it's going to be every bit as bad as it was in the days of Noah when he had to destroy the earth. Galatians 1, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, or evil age. It's evil. You dwell in it. You let it rub off on you. What's it going to do? It's going to destroy you in the end. But here's God's promise. And this is, how, this is why this prayer is so important in, in incorporating this as a part of your prayer. 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that whosoever is born or begotten of God does not practice sin or is not sinning. That's the Greek. But he who has been begotten of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. He doesn't get control over you and influence you to do the wrong thing and end up sinning in his eyes. John seventeen fifteen. John seventeen fifteen. Here's what he said. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from evil, from the evil. The one is not in the actual Greek. Probably is implied all right, because this is Satan's world. But he, he prayed, to, prayed to the Father that God would keep them from evil. We need to be on guard for that and be aware that that's what we need to be praying about. That's a part of that prayer. And in Luke 22, verse number 31, here's what Jesus told Simon. So don't think for a moment that Satan isn't uh, active behind the scenes. He said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Don't think Satan doesn't have power. We need God's help to be able to overcome that. And that prayer is intended for that very purpose. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse number 26, 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 26, we read, here he's talking about those that are in a state of mind and a frame where they need to come to repentance so that they may know the truth, he says, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him into his will. It does not mean that you have no control and power and that he can just take you at his will. That's a poor translation. 
It means that you can go, you can, you're, once you yield and go that direction, you will be under his will. And uh, in uh, uh, going back to Mark, I mean to Matthew once again, we come to the last point here. And this is in verse number 13. Deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. How do you end the prayer? You end the prayer the same way you started it. Acknowledging the power and the sovereignty of God. And the appreciation we should have for him being able to help us and to rely on him. How much can anyone do without God's help? Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. People try, they fall on their face all the time, don't they? Well, I tell you what's important. It's important that you be recognized by God as one of his. And the only way that's going to be accomplished is with God's help. Yielding to him and receiving the help you need. So, let's notice just a couple of passages here to emphasize this and bring it in closing. Because this is emphasized constantly in the Bible. Psalm 106, verse number 48. 106. Verse 48. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. That's an everlasting God. He's an eternal God. That's never going to change. In uh, Psalm 41 and verse number 13. Psalm 41, verse number 13. You find the same thing. It's emphasized in the Bible many in many, many ways. But Psalm 141. For, um, Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for, from everlasting to everlasting. That's what we need to realize. The same God answered Abraham. The same God answered Christ. The same God answers us. And that's the confidence we can have in Him. Remember, as we read here in Matthew 5, verse 16, the whole purpose of that prayer is to help us to attain to that kingdom of God. And as we read here, here's what we need to be achieving. Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. How do you do that? With God's help. And how do you get God's help? By praying regularly, faithfully, sincerely, and in following the outline that Jesus gave.